Hello everybody, I'm Matt Wolford and this is Trium Connects. One of the questions we ask is how many slaves works for you? And most people are going like, none. No, you have clothes on, you eat food. You have between 40 and 60 slaves working for you. This is not only a data issue. This is not only a, you know, how far should I go issue. This is a leadership issue. How do I choose my suppliers? What is it that I expect from my suppliers? How do I hold my suppliers accountable for that? But we need more leaders and board members that have the competence, the confidence, the, the courage to be you know, what I call stewards of the futures. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Trium Connects. My guest for this episode is Helle Bank-Jorgensen. Helle is an internationally recognized expert on sustainable business practices, and she specializes in turning environmental, social, and governance risks into innovative and profitable business opportunities. In that context, Helle is the founder and chief executive of Competent Boards, which offers online climate and ESG programs that draw on the experience of over 150 renowned board members, executives, and investors as contributors and teachers. She is also the author of a freshly minted new publication entitled Stewards of the Future, a guide for competent boards. This is a really interesting book full of interesting cases and contributions from practitioners about the dilemmas faced by board members when they're attempting to make decisions that are in the interest of not only their shareholders, but the larger universe of their stakeholders. It covers topics like climate change, ESG, corruption, cybersecurity, human trafficking, supply chain, resilience, and many, many more. Just to give you an idea of how influential and important Helle's voice is in this area, here is a short list of some of the organizations with which she operates. She is on the NASDAQ Center for Board Excellence, where she covers sustainability and ESG insights. She is a member of the World Economic Forum's Expert Network for Corporate Governance, Leadership, and Emerging Multinationals. She is part of His Royal Highness Prince of Wales A4S, Accounting for Sustainability Global Expert Panel. She's a non-financial digitalization working group member of the Impact Management Project. She's part of the Reuters Panel of Expert Judges for the Responsible Business Awards. And she's on the Canadian Climate Governance Expert Panel, uh, part of a Commonwealth Climate and Law Initiative. She has worked on natural capital accounting for the International Finance Corporation and for the World Bank. And last but not least... Helly created the world's first green account, which was based on a life cycle assessment and the first integrated annual report that combines ESG with financial performance. In our discussion here, what I try to do is present some dilemmas or some of the kind of hard choices that boards or decision makers and companies must face if they're really serious about integrating ESG metrics into the evaluation of how the firm is performing. Many of the people who write in this area or who are passionate about including ESG issues into performance evaluations often will put forward the argument that by doing this, by putting these ESG factors into their performance 
evaluations. They're actually operating in the best interest, the best financial interest of the firm. This is almost certainly true in many, many cases. But I call this the easy alignment problem in that it's easy essentially to argue to businesses that if they really are interested in their long-term success, that they have to integrate more far-reaching, more interesting evaluative criteria into their performance. But what is difficult is when ESG constraints, concerns about the environment, concerns about the social impact of what we're doing, conflict with what is the best thing to do in either the short-term or the long-term profit of the firm. In those situations, which of our values should trump? Which of our values should win out in our decisions in those situations? Most of our conversation here is about those type of situations. And I really can't think of a better partner for that conversation than Helle. So without any further ado, I bring you my conversation with Helle Bank-Jorgensen. Helle Bank-Jorgensen, welcome to Triumph Connects. Well, thank you so much, Matt. It's a pleasure being with you here. Oh, it's fantastic having you. You know, as part of the research of doing the podcast, I've been looking at some of your work on with competent boards. It's really impressive stuff. For those of you who are not familiar, it looks like essentially it's a certification process for board members in expertise in ESG issues. Is, is that right? Have I got that explanation right? You got it. So we both have a board of directors. We also have executives. We actually also have asset managers going through. And yes, it's in focused on what I call learning the ABC of ESG and climate. So, and when I say ESG, so environment, social governance, it's not only, you know, the traditional, we also talking about uh, anti-corruption, we're talking about uh, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, diversity, equity, inclusion, the sustainable development goals, supply chain issues, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's where we're trying to, to have that view of, integrated thinking on all of these issues and that's what's so needed in the boardroom today and and you know what all the asset managers asking for and and frankly what all the other stakeholders asking for as well so so yes we are training board members and executives and and uh, asset managers to be better at uh, seeing the risk and the opportunities of esg and climate well, I tell you, any any of those uh, folks listening in now and you're interested, I, I'd sure recommend you get, getting in touch because it's it, it really, really do look like great programs. Um, and I wish that we could come up with something better than ESG because, it, in, as you said, incorporates so many things and governments, governance issues is such different things than looking at environmental issues and climate issues, et cetera, et cetera. So, look, uh, if you if you if you come up with a new catchy title, uh, I think that would be a, a do us all a service. I, I think that we have been going through all of these titles. I actually just did another interview, but from CSR to ESG and responsibility, et cetera. I mean, this is just about being smart leaders, having the insight, having the foresight, understanding what's happening out there in the world. And I should, by the way, say that a few of, of your great uh, Alumni from the Trium uh, program have been uh, going through the program and, and saying nice things about it. Uh, and, and by the way, my dear husband have gone through the Trium program is saying very, very nice things about both the Trium program 
but of course also you and wow well, that, that's uh, that's enough of that that was very very kind of you i appreciate it and and uh and uh jasper is, is wonderful to have on the program so I, a, a big shout out to him now look um I, uh, what I'd like to do in this conversation is, first of all, start with a kind of caveat that I am largely and personally kind of on board with the arguments about ESG and how, how these kind of, as you said, enlightened leadership needs to be part of any kind of wise board uh, kind of action. But what I've tried to do is put together a series of kind of challenging questions for us to talk about today to try to see where some of the limits of the argument is. And I must say that part, some of these questions have come from when I'm on the other side trying to defend uh, the inclusion of these issues. And some of these are some of the harder questions that I get. And what I wanted to do is talk to somebody much smarter than I am in this area to give me kind of like ammunition the next time that I talk to people. So I, 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 hope, that, I hope that we're okay with that. Matt, this is the first time I have one on on your academic side of the table saying that. Uh, so I don't, I don't, I think you're smarter than I am on on many of these issues. And I have to admit, I'm a little bit nervous. It is kind of like strange to be having this. It's almost like you have to defend a PhD that I never did. But but nevertheless, <laughs> so so I'm I'm game, and I have been defending these arguments for what thirty years. So let's see let's see what we get. let's see where we go. It was very interesting that you gave a background in the forward to your new book, uh, um, and in there you said you talked about how you started your academic career, and this was largely about um, attempting to convince organizations and firms that they need to kind of incorporate the total cost of their operations into some sort of performance metrics. So I have some training in economics. So when I read about that, the, the, the kind of phrase that popped into my mind were these externalities. So negative and positive externalities from what we do. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about the importance of having some way to kind of internalize these externalities. Definitely. And, and, and yes, I included that. And I, and I did the first green account in the world. And I was lucky enough to, while I did my, my, my master, actually uh, be invited. I called the professor of the technical university and said, could he use someone like me? He was working on life cycle analysis. And I was, you know, studying in terms of economics, being an accountant, and I was looking at it and saying, what if we could also not only look at the life cycle analysis and you know how much water can we save, how much electricity can we save? And, and think about it, this is 30 years, I guess a little bit more uh, ago now. But I was saying, what if we could put a cost on that? So picked up the phone, called the professor. He said, yep come on over to Copenhagen and, and I started uh, this fantastic work with this life cycle center, um, you know, uh, and, and started to look at, as I said, the cost of that. So it was everything from, you know, uh, looking at very specific cost of, of these, when you have a new product, the, the research and development of that new product, how do you ensure that you, use the smartest resources for the whole life cycle. Then, then he sent me to the Danish steelwork um, and they were, you know, there were some issues in, in the, the, the city where there were people saying there's 
too much smoke in, in the air, uh, dead fish in the sea. And, and the steelworks saying, well, we're doing everything we can. Um, but so I started to look at it and saying, you know, how can we, how can we report on what the company is doing? How can we internalize some of those things and saying, what is, what is actually coming from the company? So Matt, at that point, when we had pollution, we put up a smokestack that was, that was just higher, right? We got rid of the pollution that way. Dead fish, well, you know, let's put a pipeline that, that's, that's longer. And we kind of like said, well, that was, that was you know, solution to, to the, the, the problem. We thought that, well, by doing that, pollution would disappear. And in fact, that our earth would clean it up. And we were not completely wrong at that point. Because if you, if you look at the earth's systems, at that point, we were actually able to clean the air, to observe, you know, to get some of those pollution out. But right now, we're in a situation where we are probably asking Mother Earth um, more than we can provide. We're crossing those planetary boundaries. One, one of the faculty members, Johan Rockström, is very much in terms of the planetary boundaries. And, and we, we kind of like crossing that. So, so when we talk about externalities, and, and I guess um, you know, there is, and I'm quoting that book, or that, that book in my book, uh, Limits to Growth. That was out in 1972. And that's also when we really started to use the word externalities. Um, and, and you might've seen, I think you have, because you really looked at the book, uh, that 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 graph or the, the, the figure in, in the book. And it, it kind of like, unfortunately shows where we have been heading and hopefully not shows where we are heading. Because, you know, it starts with 1900, I guess when my grandmother was born um, and predict how, how the world's population uh, will look like in, in the next, you know, from, from 1900 to the 2100, uh, it looks at pollution, it looks at resources, uh, and it predicts food per capita and industrial outcome per capita will start, you know, failing us and falling drastically from now on. And the same with death and birth will start rising. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see some of those predictions because obviously some of them have come to being there's there's also we're, we're waiting on others but i, I want to take it before we start to talk about the macro trends i i wonder if we could just step back a little bit because this kind of idea of internalizing externalities has always been really super fascinating to me and i i, I do want to get to the macro stuff because it, it, it is it is so important but i i, I want to talk just spend a little bit of time on the on the kind of on on the guts of this kind of argument because as you said, the, the, the smokestack is the classic example. So you, if you have a factory and it's producing a good and the pollution is belching into the sky, uh, the factory goes and sells uh, its good, but it doesn't have to pay for all the costs that the pollution is causing. So this is kind of everybody else bears that cost, um, but, the, but it's not incorporating into the cost of the good. Um, and so that externality is not paid for. And we can think of a lot of situations where 
it really makes sense to internalize the externality. I mean, this is the whole idea of carbon tax, right? The idea that everything we do, if we, if we monitored the amount of carbon that it produced um, and we paid for that, if that was part of the price, then we would have a kind of more realistic view of the full cost of what we're doing. And also we'd give companies, uh, you know, manufacturers an incentive to uh, limit that uh, carbon emission because they somehow would, their, their goods would be less expensive. But I guess, as I said, I, I want to try to think about kind of hard issues here. And I want to take them back to really, you know, board questions about what, what a board should do. And, and let me think through like a, a small a little example here. So let's say I'm sitting on a board. I'm a board member on a company that produces um, double glazed windows. And it's, it's a B2B business. So it sells to other businesses. Now, I know that the window increases the efficiency of homes um, by reducing their heating and cooling needs. And therefore their carbon footprint for the house goes down. But at the same time, I know that the window that I manufacture, that manufacturing process produces significant amounts of carbon itself, right? And that's going to be put into the atmosphere. Okay, now let's just assume that I'm a board and I want to do the right thing. And I look at my current price point and I say, well, if I, and, and, and for the consumer, the, the payback period for that window is four years. So let's say you say, consumer, you buy this window uh, and it'll pay for itself in reduced savings uh, uh, or reduced costs in your heating in four years. But if I incorporate some of the costs of the carbon emissions of the production of the window into the price of the window, then let's say that the payback period gets pushed out to eight years right? Because now the window is more expensive. And if I'm a consumer, I'm going to have to have it in place a lot longer. And I know that if I do that, not only will I be at a competitive disadvantage to everybody else who's not doing that, but also let's say that I can get around that competitive disadvantage. It's going to be a lot less people that adopt the windows. And therefore the overall carbon footprint of all the houses is going to remain relatively high, even though they would have a payback period over the eight years. So I'm sitting on the board and I want to do the right thing. So how should I, as a board member, go about thinking about this challenge? Well, the, the first thing kind of like here is that, that if we have where you need to embed the externalities, you know, so you really have to yeah. buy laws, regulations, et cetera. Well, everyone will be at the same page, right? So, so but let's, let's look at it from the board of directors point of view. So the first thing I would do was let's look at our purpose statement. Let's look at our values. Let's look at the expectations of our stakeholders. Let's ask if we want to be a leader or we want to be a lagger when it comes to climate. Let's start with leadership, right? Do we want to be a leader? And one of the faculty's members of, of the Competent Board Certificate and Designation Program is Paul Pullman. And he is saying, we have a leadership crisis. You know, really like Paul, uh, I think we have leaders, but, but we need more leaders uh, and board members that have the competence, the confidence, the, the courage to be you know, what I call stewards of the futures. Uh, and, and, that is not only making 
you know, how do we make as much money today as possible is also how do we make that money? What are the short and the long-term consequences of our actions? So when we talk about those analysis and we talk about the, the resources that, that you use for free or not pay the full amount, you know, in your example, your competitors could have the same cash flow impact. But if your company, our company, if you and I at the board now, if we have been smart enough to start saying, okay, we believe that in the future, we are going to have to pay for this. Let's start putting in some shadow pricing. Let's start to see what is the cost of the product in reality could be, perhaps should be. See, now, now you have more information than your competitors that's just out there. And you can start a transition to a better product with less you know, cost in the full life cycle. So, so if you have that product that is cheaper to buy your window, but you know, the insulation quality is lower than more expensive windows, well, then in reality, you're, you're kind of like almost cheating your customers if you're not talking about the total cost of ownership. But I understood your, your example was kind of like, oh, we have two exactly the same, but company A is saying, we are not going to tell anyone about the cost of carbon or the cost of water or the cost of everything else. And, and the other one is saying, well, maybe we should. And I think if you want to have that stance as being that company that, that want to be seen as just helping customers reduce their bills in the long run, or also as a climate leader. You wanna ask who are your stakeholders? Nowadays, you have, most of the companies are asking their suppliers, what are you doing? Because they need to also report you know, TCFD reporting, so it's task force for climate related financial disclosures. Um, and, and, you know, so what is the net carbon of, of the windows? Yeah, I mean, that's a problem. I mean, you started the answer, and I completely agree. So if there is a regulatory framework, and I know everybody's under the same framework, and everybody's incorporating the carbon, I'm happy with that, because it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me, I'm not going to be at a competitive disadvantage. Um, and I know that if I incorporate the cost, and I say to my customer base, look, um, I'm more expensive, because I've incorporated these externalities into my price. Um, and there will probably be some of them that will go, okay, fair enough, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pay for that. But my, my worry would be if I was the board member is that I, I'm gonna essentially stop people from buying my product. I'm, I'm gonna put myself at a comparative disadvantage. So as I understand the answer though that you gave, which I think is really, really interesting is maybe the advantage to me as a firm is that I get to anticipate the regulatory framework and so I do things in my own time. I start to run, as you say, this kind of shadow uh, pricing that I can see how much the actual cost is and try to, try to, try to kind of eliminate some of those carbon emissions from, from my supply chain. Yes, and I would say that, you know, I completely agree with you that the way you, you, you kind of like phrase this is probably how we were thinking a few years ago. I think now you're seeing, you know, leaders stepping up, Maersk is an example, shipping company, right? You have this chicken and egg issue. It's like, well, you know, um, how, can we, how can we reduce the carbon footprint? 
while sailing. And, and I should say, I worked with them years ago and, and when kind of like asked the question, how can you do that? And one of the answers was, well, we can sail slower, right? At that point, you know, it was kind of like, well, what about, what about the customers? That means that they get their, their products later. And I said, well, you know, I also had the logistics and just in time in, in, in school. And, and, you know, you can order that a little bit before. But I was working at that point with, you know, with Nike, with Maersk, with, well, yes, also Maersk, but, but uh, Ikea, H&M, and all the others that were asking to reduce the carbon footprint in their supply chain. And so by doing that, I actually think that if you go to Maersk right now, they will say, yes, our customers actually want to pay more for it because that is what you as a consumer want. That is what, you know, so, so it's, it's almost that positive circle. And I think more and more are realizing that, you know, no company can succeed in a world that fail. And that leadership in terms of bringing in talent, most of the young people and probably those also a little bit older, uh, you know, wanna say, we wanna work a place where we actually can make a difference. So, so if the only thing you as a board member is saying is like, oh, how can I, how can I make as much profit as possible? I think that that's right. I think that the times of that uh, are largely done. I think though that it, I mean, maybe, maybe if, let me, let me give you a different example. I'm just trying to think about times if I, again, let's say I'm a good faith, I'm a certified ESG board member and I'm like approaching these problems and I'm not sure how to deal with them. So let's talk about solar panels for a second, just as an example. Now, let's say I'm, I, I am attracting lots of people to work for me because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm making solar panels, solar panel. I have a good purpose. I want to clean up the environment. I don't want to have so much carbon in the air. And so I'm part of this green energy revolution, et cetera, et cetera. And I say, well, you know, I want to start to incorporate these externalities, as we said. And, and, and so I start to look at my supply chain. And you, by the way, in the book, you have a great chapter. Chapter five is, is great on supply chain dilemmas. And, and I was just trying to pick up on some of these and think about them. And so now I, let's say I start to say, okay, well, what goes into my solar panels? And what you need for solar panels is uh, silicon. And to get silicon, you need quartite gravel. That's what it starts. And it's interesting when you look at supply chains long enough, you always get back to stuff that's either dug out of the ground or grown in the earth. You know, it's, it, that's all we've got, right? That's, that's the raw materials. So they get this gravel out of the earth, they extract it, and it has silicon in it, and they put it in a huge arc furnace first time through and they get kind of not and and the silicon melts and there's it's 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 a complicated process but they get the first cut at about 99% uh, purity and then they take that product off and then they heat it up again to a super high temperature to get all the other impurities out to make it a pure enough silicon to be used in solar panel production now china by far is the biggest manufacturer of pure silicon so just, just as a numbers, I, again, I, I was researching this and it, it surprised me. So in 2020, they produced 5.4 million tons of silicon, pure silicon. The next biggest producer was Russia and it had less than a 10th that amount. Now, 
to heat that silicon up twice to these massive temperatures takes a huge amount of energy. And that energy almost all comes from coal in the China sense. Now, the other main raw materials are phosphorus, boron, and titanium oxide. Again, these kind of chemical processes. And each one of those is dug out of the ground at some point and then refined, and the refining all have their own footprint as well. Okay. Now, if I leave aside the other materials, like the metal frame and the glass that goes on top, the truck, the vessel, the, the trading vessel that gets it to the port, the port that gets it to the store, the store that gets it to my, my roof, whatever it is, and I want to incorporate the cost of externalities, it's not clear to me. It's probably clear that I want to look at my suppliers, right? So if I'm a, if I'm a solar panel manufacturer, I want to look where all this stuff comes from. But I should always already probably look at their suppliers, which might be the refining companies, and then maybe their suppliers, which are the mining companies, and then maybe the suppliers of the mining companies, so like the heavy equipment, like where do they get their Caterpillar equipment? What is it? And then the, to their supplier, the Caterpillar supplies, I guess what I'm saying is I'm trying to do the right thing. I want to know how to incorporate, but where do I stop? You know, it just seems like supply chains go so deep and then each one kind of multiplies off in this exponential growth. If, what, what advice would you give to a board member who is saying, where do I, where do I stop? Where, at what point do I stop looking at that? Well, you try to continue, but you start at the start. Okay. Right. So, so we have, and, and there's a lot of complexities in, in your question. We can go in and talk human rights. We can go in and talk, um, you know, um, the fact that, that we are use and throw away versus how do we actually reuse uh, the materials, et cetera, et cetera. But if you, if you focus on, all right, let's just look at, uh, at, at our different, you know, our supply chain. You, by the way, also go in and look at your full value chain. But let's see that. You're, so, so we talk about um, something called scope one and scope two and scope three. First, scope one, that's, that's your, your direct emissions from owned or controlled sources. Okay. You have that data. Yeah. Easy, right? Two, that's the indirect emissions from generation of purchased purchased electricity, steam, heating, cooling, you know, those kind of thing. You can get that relatively yeah. easy. Your power of procurement sure. make, you, make you able to get that relatively easy. Then you start to go to scope three. And that's, that's where you actually start the journey. And yes, it's not easy. But if you use what I call the power of procurement, and if you follow the money, you start to get to this, you know, indirect emissions in the company's value chain. So, <laughs> you know, you, you said before that you started economics and I was like, I, I looked a lot into activity-based costing, right? How do, how do we put that into that? But frankly, what's happening at the moment with scope one, two, three, so carbon emissions, is that you dip the TCFD, um, reporting, looking at it, countries to start looking at it to say, how do you report? Asset managers are, are, are asking for for your scope, you know, one, two, and three. 
and frankly, that scope three, you know, that's if you had a perfect system, you know, every product comes with its with its a little, okay, this is how much carbon that's that's used for this. This is how much water that's used, right? This is how much of all of these different materials. And you could frankly add it up and hopefully not do double counting, et cetera. But what you also looting is that it's not always easy to find some of these suppliers. And that's where you start now when I'm focusing perhaps also both on environment, but also social human rights issues, where you start now seeing that the law out of France, this law out of other countries, where you actually as a company need to do your due diligence, right? Not only on, on your first, but on your suppliers. So yes, you need to start looking at those suppliers in a, in a way where you do your due diligence and ask your suppliers not only to sign a code of conduct, not only to do that, but really understand how do you go back. So, so you know, what kind of um, you know, full life cycle uh, assessment can you truly do? What is most material of these issues, both to you and to your stakeholders? And, and at least you can, you can start understand what are the areas that you should tackle first and then go from there. So, so right, I mean, we, we need to look at this as, if you follow the money, you, you, you can follow that, but we have been really, really good at following the money, but not so good at following, um, you know, the, the, the carbon emissions and, and, and the pollution, et cetera. And, and that you know, goes back to your externalities before. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I think that that's a sensible a way of, of approaching it that you can't be, you know, okay, fine. You can't do everything, but let's think about these in, in steps. And the first step is, you know, what are, what are our own emissions? And I really like the way that you said, because in some ways it's a data problem, right? If everything was completely transparent, it would be easier, but also, I guess what the question I was trying to get at it is it is a data problem, but it's also a little bit of a theoretical problem that I'm not sure we know where to stop you know, what, at what point, because to the extent that's in this, as you said, in the full value chain, everything that comes together in that, I guess one could imagine if you had all data possible, you could maybe do it. But even there, I would say, do I really have to, let, let, let's say I'm a solar panel manufacturer. Do I really have to incorporate the maker of the spare tire of the heavy uh, of the caterpillar that was used to mine the the gravel that went three steps before it got to my panel, and 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 where is you know the the cost of of getting all of these data versus what are you getting out of it? But that's also why you know this is not only a data issue. This is not only a you know how far should I go issue. This is a leadership issue, right? How do I choose my suppliers? What is it that I expect from my suppliers? How do I hold my suppliers accountable for that? So let me give you an example. When, you know, if at, at some point, you know, we all buying stuff, um, including a very red, uh, nice blouse, and you're wearing a red blouse, I can see, and, and um, was, uh, you know, first time in the, in the washing machine. And what happened? Oh, the other clothes got to be you know, 
kind of like the same color. So you are importing, you know, some dye that was not not legal, I guess, right? And and so so you are having that analysis that so you can see that what from a European point of view and the world start talking about that. How can we start putting a tariff on carbon? You know, and in that way, well, you need to start measuring it. You can say the same with, you know, I love almonds. But when when you eat an almond, you have actually exported or imported to, to your country probably a lot of water from a region that do not have that much water. So other people, so so I think this is a bigger, it's a bigger question not only about saying, okay, how do we go, but really asking ourselves, how are we producing those products? And that goes back to where I started with, with life cycle assessment. How do we in our research and development ask the questions on how do we minimize you know, the use of, of resources? How do we reuse? How do we ensure that we are regenerating many of these things instead of saying okay you know let's let's do it and then we'll fix it afterwards and we go back in the supply chain and 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 try to find the, the right so so i know it's not it's that would be nice if we could do that we can't do that from from scratch but we can start looking at our yeah i i think that that makes sense i mean i i but it but it raises an issue that and it's kind of maybe moves us on to the next question i want to talk about in that We've mentioned regulatory frameworks a couple times now, and at, at, at kind of my darkest times, I think you know that has to be the solution. That can be the only solution because if we don't have that solution, we have to rely on kind of the individual values of the board members. We have to rely on uh, you know doing the right thing, and then and then often the counter argument to that is you know people say, Matt, don't be so pessimistic because. It actually, if you do the right thing, it's the best business. And I always, I call this kind of like the easy alignment argument in that, you know, often when I go to, if I, if I talk to people in this field and, I, and, and, you know, very passionate people working on such important material and, and there, a lot of their arguments are essentially, essentially this leaders, you just have to understand that if you were really good at business, this is what you do. If you're really good at strategy, this is what you do. And don't worry, even though it's the right thing to do, it's also the financially rewarding thing to do if you have the long enough timeline. So you know, you're, you're, you're gonna have to do this because it mitigates your risk against regulation. You're gonna have to do this because you'll be able to attract the best talent and otherwise you aren't gonna be able to attract the talent. You have to do this because in the, in, at the end you might be responsible for cleanup that you didn't think you're gonna be responsible for and then there was gonna be a cost associated with that, et cetera. And I, I think that that's right. You can tell people sometimes, but it's often, I mean, for example, you wrote in your book, you know, boards and management themselves are coming to realize that what is good for society at large is also invariably benefits the shareholders. And when I read that, I thought, God, I wish that was always true. And, and maybe it is always true, but I, th I think that, you know, a lot of times it seems to be, well, let me, let me just argue. So if that was true, and we assume kind of a, a, a perfect market information. So for, you know, for the economists out there, that means, you know, all the information is kind of incorporated into the price of shares. 
So we should see some sort of positive correlation between ESG practices and a stock price, because we'd assume that the price is capturing, you know, oh, look, the board's taking into account this long-term mitigation risk. The board's taking into account that it's going to be easier for them to hire good talent. And so they're going to be more successful in the long run. I'm going to invest in them and the price should go up. There's a recent article by uh, Demodrin, who's a professor on, the, on, on our course, and he, he tried to disentangle, you know, good versus sounding good, you know, companies. And, and what he found is that there's evidence that some, what he calls bad companies, so companies that are clearly engaged in activity that you would say, oh, that's, you know, something you don't want to be involved in, they tend to be punished. Okay, so their stock price is, you know, they're, they're trading at a kind of a discount. But he argues that there's kind of little or ambiguous information or evidence that there's a kind of causal link between a firm's uh, goodness or a fund's goodness and their performance. And so he says, look, there, there is this case, if it's a small privately held niche companies with an environmentally conscious clientele, for example, but if there's no, I guess what I'm saying, if there's no correlation, if, if we're right that doing good is always best, economically and long-term. We should see this reflected in price. If there's not reflected in the price, there's ignorance somewhere. So is it the, the stock buyers just don't understand that they're, are they making stupid decisions in investing in companies that don't have good ESG track records? That's a really long and convoluted question. I'm sorry, but what? And, 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 and the very short answer is, I don't like to say it, but yes, we do not have a perfect market, right? We don't know exactly all of these things, you know, and, and I can't blame a lot because, you know, when I went to school, as I said, 30 years ago, and, and I started this journey, no one, you know, I mean, yes, we had limits to grow. We also had another book by Milson Friedman, right? 10, 10 years earlier than that, I think it was in 62. And, and where we argued that as long as you're within the rules, you know, you only is to make as much money as possible. However, that is unfortunately where, where we now see that the, you can say the rules. We don't have, I argue, you know, we don't have the information that reflect what is this company? That's why we're talking about, you know, stranded assets. That's why we're talking about Mark Carney saying, you know, the strategy at the horizon. That's why, you know, if, if we had perfect information, and frankly, this was what I argued in my master thesis, you know, you needed to put into the balance sheet of the company, right? You needed to not only have, here's the, I bought this, this, uh, or I, I had this, this production site, but what will it take afterwards to, to take, you know, that down in, in a responsible way, take oil rigs, right? That, and, and I argued that, you know, at the, still, if, if you educate your employees, well, that's a cost. It's not, a, it's not an asset. So, so, you, the short answer to your question is that's why we are seeing that companies are asking for much more information or, or and asset managers are asking for much more information that you just see in the financial report. And, and yes, so the accountant, and yes, I've signed the, 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 the financial accounts, but I also signed 
integrated reports. And I think we need to start looking at that. You know, Matt, I think a few years ago, um, just to give you an example, um, large country in this world that um, where the air, air pollution was going up and up and up. And in the same time, their credit rating was going up. It was very clear that people couldn't get outside, they couldn't breathe. You know, how are you going to make money in, in if, if you can't breathe? So, so, so unfortunately, yes, we, we have that. And, and yes, I've seen, both of you and I have seen all of these articles. I think we have the ratings, we have the rankings. You need to look in the same way as if you look at a financial report or a sustainability report or anything else, how are the, where do we get the data from? How we put those data in, in, in place? What are we really looking for? Yeah, I mean, part of the problem though is that that continues to be voluntary. You know, a lot of that information is voluntary. Now it might be being pushed for and therefore it might feel like it's it's not voluntary, but I guess I would, I would be more sanguine. I would be more, uh, I don't know, optimistic if what we saw was companies, large numbers of companies in industries getting together and going to the governance structures and saying, we need regulation. And so they do. So they do, right? And, and that's, that's the beauty. Oh, well, I mean, no, that depends who, who looks at it. But, but at the moment, you have you know, industries that are saying to, in, we had COP26 or, you know, in, in, uh, in Glasgow um, last year, and, and saying, we need to have a price on carbon. We need to have a level playing field. That goes back to your first question, right? If we had a level playing field, Okay, of course, I mean, the, the, the big issues if we start that discussion is and then you can start talking about a just transition, where you perhaps say okay now we start producing it in very close by you know by only my country uh, uh, products which then have some other consequences. So the inter, you know, then you, you can start talking about climate refugees or financial refugees that then will impact you. You're in the UK, um, but so so there's a lot of those different things that are connected. But that's why we as board members we need to have that total picture. We need to be able to look at all of these different dilemmas and make informed decisions. But you can't make those informed decisions if you're not informed. The same goes for the, you know, the, the investors, the asset managers. So when I have asset managers that's joining the, the, our, our programs, our ESG and climate programs, you know, they're starting to see all of that. They're starting to be able to ask the questions to the companies and to the board members and, and, you know, and in that way have a real conversation. And frankly, I would rather invest with those, then, you know, because they actually understand if this company is going to, to also be around in, in the years to come and not just a short term, oh yeah, we can, we can make something here, but then next year we are not, we are not in business anymore. Well, yeah. I mean, I want to talk about nature of shareholders and the kind of heterogeneous heterogeneity in the, in their preference structures in, in a little bit, but I, I think, I mean, I, to the extent that I, I like to hear from you, and because you know this more than I, that companies are going to the state and saying to the state, we need these kind of uh, regulations because we want to have a, um, 
a level playing field. It seems to me that you also read a lot about lobbying that would be against this kind of regulations and companies, boards, and and managers saying, look, uh, the last thing we want is to be regulated to death. And sometimes you can be you can see this um, incorporation. Now, this is me being cynical. The incorporation of ESG training and certification and et cetera, that this is this is uh, trying to accumulate evidence to forestall or delay governance or regulatory frameworks by set, by proving that look we can do this on our own because we we have we we're, we're stewards of the future and we're wise and if we if we let it get into this regulatory morass and the state will always be will corrupt it et cetera et cetera and yet I'm not sure how you get around that problem of making sure it's a it's a completely fair playing field if it's just simply voluntary it's a very, very interesting question. And, and I think, you know, there's not a one silver bullet uh, on, on this. And we are seeing, you know, G7, G20, we, we, we're seeing, you know, COP, um, the, the, the climate conference coming up with this. We are seeing that the TCFD is being coming mandatory. So I did an interview with the, the, the minister of, um, of climate out of uh, New Zealand was the first. You're in in UK made TCFD uh, mandatory, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you are starting to see it's becoming into law. We now have in terms of the IFRS, so the International Financial Reporting Standards that are now having a sustainability standard. So you're starting to see the auditors will go in and 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 audit all of this. The the, the issue. Um, if, if you think about your, your, you know, your question in terms of um, education and should it, is that enough versus having governments to just put all the rules and regulations in place? We will always, we have always had, you know, different people that trying to find the hole in the regulation. And human rights, talk about uh, modern slavery, talk about a lot of other, other things. So if you, if you just say, well, this is up to the governments to regulate. You look at some of the, the, the companies now, they are larger than many of the countries in the world. If you look at Apple, Apple, it, you know, uh, kind of like, uh, but the, the top of uh, should be, I guess, uh, uh, one of the G20 uh, members. Uh, and so, so you have, um, you have on one hand, you can say, yes, governments can do all of this. But I think what we're seeing is that the Edelman barometer is saying we're actually putting more trust on companies. We're now seeing, I think Ernst Young just came out with, with, with a survey saying, I'm going to say 82%. Of, of the of the CEOs now saying that ESG is strategic imperative. So I believe that, and that's that's the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing, is that having and and have we all of these 150 board members and and executives and others helping me, that that understanding the impact of the actions we do 
is the first thing to do it. Then, yes, we have the help of you know all the young people with their phones and, and, and other things that are pushing the pressure. We have the help of the asset managers. You know, State Street was just out yesterday, I, I believe, uh, with their um, proxy advising, saying that we are not going to vote for board members in this and this, and they are focusing on climate and they're fo focusing on diversity. BlackRock the same. So the banks are out saying, what are you doing in terms of transition? So if you're not educated as a board member, you might not be at the next board, right? That That's the other thing we saw with um, engine number one. And I had the pleasure of also interviewing Chris James from engine number one that, that um, you know, did a campaign against one of the, the, the big companies in this world and, and won three board seats, right? So you need to have that education. And I believe that, I believe it's, it's not enough. We have surveys that shows that, you know, I think it was last year, the year before where I said like 17% of board members that serves on a committee overseeing sustainability, ESG, climate, call it what we want, have, you know, I think they call it ESG conscious. So if you were serving on an audit committee and overseeing the financials and only 17% could read the profit and loss, could read the balance sheet, you know, you would not be happy. You wouldn't invest in that company. No, I, I completely get that. I, I guess my 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 slight pushback on that, and 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 it's only a slight pushback because I, I, as you can imagine, I'm in education myself, and so I I think that it absolutely is a thing, is a force for uh, you know you can have a, such a thing as enlightened decision making, and and part of that is through education. But sometimes I I don't know really if it's a lack of knowledge. I mean. If that was the case, we just need to educate board members and then everything would be great. And the, the problem is, is that a lot of these things are essentially contested uh, concepts about what we should do. And, and so, for example, in politics, we don't say, look, if all politicians were just educated, then they'd all agree about what we should do. Uh, because they, they have essentially different kind of ideas about what is the right thing to do. So, you know, a tobacco company board, they it's not that they don't understand the consequences of what happens to their consumers when they use their uh, uh, use their tobacco. It's maybe they say, well, look, I, I think it should be people's individual choice. And, and if that's what they want to do, it, it's what they want to do. Or a, a tech company might say, look, it's not that I under that I don't understand what can happen to the society using my platform. But I think that the I think that the importance of people, uh, I don't know, defining their identity and living in the metaverse is, is more important than, than the negative things that can come about. And all my platform does is reflect the ugliness in the world. It doesn't cause it. And an oil and gas company, they don't go, oh, if only I understood the damage that I was doing to the environment, I'd stop. Well, they completely understand the, the damage that they're doing to the environment, but they believe that in order to have a transition to a cleaner energy source or whatever they're going to we're going to have to continue to do this or whatever it might be so i guess i'm all for the education but i don't think that it we can think that it's going to solve all the problems because things like the balance between individual rights and responsibilities to community and how you 
value externalities and the subjective value, for example, of being able to have, you know, more species versus less species, those aren't going to be kind of universally held, no matter how much we educate people. Um, and so um, I, I guess there's some things that get like that. So I guess we don't, you know, slavery now is to the point, you know, it's at the point where we wouldn't say, okay, well, it's regulations that stop large scale slavery from happening. It's because we've decided as a, as a whole world that that's not something we want to do. Um, so maybe we're getting something like that, but I guess I have a little bit of skepticism that, that education, edu educating boards will all lead to the kind of uh, alignment about what's important or not. I don't think any of us want to have people that think exactly the same. You, you don't want to have your, the, 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 you, the, polit the politicians uh, kind of like that, that you, you go in and you saying, oh, they, they all say the same. But you do want them to be informed, I hope, about what is best for people, right? So it might be that they say, well, I believe in this strategy, if you kind of like a, a, in a board room, right? What's the strategy? What is the best way forward for this company? In the same way, what's the best way forward for this country? There are many ways. And that's the, that's the role, right? We need to look at all of these different strategies, these different opportunities. We need to look at the risk. We need to figure out what is the best way forward. We need to look at, of course, the regulation. We need to look at what is it that's coming in the future? What do we believe in? What do we not believe in? Do we want to be a leader? Do we want to be a lacquer? And all of those things are informing you know, the strategy of the company and therefore what are way we're going. If you don't know all of this and you're saying, well, you, you do know, or you know, as, as the board members, these different things. Well, that's where you start seeing the pressure coming from, as I said before, the asset managers, but frankly, also from your children, right? That you have, you have now, and I hear it, um, you know, those that, that come and, and go through the programs, they want to have the insight, they, they want to know that, and I don't believe they all know it. I can tell you one of the things in terms of modern slavery, one of the questions we ask is how many slaves works for you? And most people are going like, none. No, you have clothes on, you eat food. You have, I think it's like between 40 and 60 slaves working for you, right? So yes, you're saying, well, we don't have that anymore. We do. We are just not aware of all of these things. So this thing, the, the time where you have then start seeing these different, and, and yes, you can wait for regulation, but regulation is often, you know, as an, as a, I'm not going to say after, after thought, but it, it is when you start seeing the issues. Yeah. And I guess that's right. I mean, I think that's a powerful point because I guess one way to think about it would be, look, if you're a company and you decide to do something and you're explaining to me your strategy, um, if you've decided to ignore certain factors, I want to know why you're ignoring those or why you're, why you're not taking them into account. And then I can make that choice about whether that's a company I want to invest in, whether I think that that's a good decision, whether I'm, I'm making that decision based on the, my kind of uh, forecast of the economic performance or whether I'm making it on some sort of ethical ground, at least I'm going to, at least the, the, the decision is transparent. And I know that you've taken those things into consideration. And I think maybe, maybe that's the best we can do. 
Yeah, and 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 think about it also in terms of is this a place I want to work? Yeah. Is this a place I want to buy from? Is this a place I want to go and 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 you know uh, send my children uh, to? I'll give you another dilemma. I like these little cases because I think that they try to to you know. And one of the things this and these are this is a case that I, I'm actually familiar with. So it's a real case. I'm gonna I'm not gonna tell the company or the country or things like this. But let's say you have a large independent oil company, and they're operating in Africa. And they're bidding on a project that will be right in the middle of a wildlife refuge, right in the middle of a national park. Okay. And of course, oil extraction in those kinds of situations is inherently dangerous. All right. And they're going to put in lots of mitigating factors, et cetera, et cetera. And when I talk to this company and I say, what are you doing? I mean, the reputational risk here is huge. And the amount of resources that are actually available here isn't even enough to really, you know, it's a rounding error on your revenue statement. You know, why would you do this? And the, and the answer comes back, if we don't do this, the, another company will do it from this other country. And if you think we're bad, wait till you see what happens if they get the contract. All right. And um, also, we're using it to improve our knowledge about how we do extraction at the lowest possible footprint. So not only are we, uh, is this R&D about, uh, about environmentally sensitive extraction, we're also, by being here, stopping worse things. Okay. Now, I guess if we, if we apply what we talked about before, first of all, I'd want the board to be able to question that. Okay, what are the what are the assumptions behind this? But secondly, I think that that's a that's a hard one for board. I mean, in that sense, we might say, okay, they made the argument to go ahead and do it. How do we judge that argument? How how, how would we decide if I want to be a, a kind of ESG certified, bona fide kind of board member? What would I say if the, if that if that argument came to the board? What would you recommend that they do? Well, first and foremost, I think that you would start saying, okay, is, is that stranded assets from its outset? Because, you know, how, how much, how much uh, do we need these different places? Number two is, and I, I, I totally get, and I'm discussing that dilemma, a, a few places of, uh, but perhaps the other way around, we have a stranded assets. Let's get let's get that sold off to someone else, so so they can do it. But perhaps they are then going to you know, use that in in the dirtiest way possible. I mean, it's just going to be a disaster. Yeah. So so that's and that's where actually going back to I think State Street is 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 including that in. They're not greenwash, but I think it's called brownish wash or something like that, yeah. that they have that they have now put in, right? You are going to be held accountable for this. So what is the big thing to do here? Is that to say, oh, let's uh, then let some others in, or is it to to take that leadership position and say, what country is this? How can we work with others so we are not, you know, frankly, you know, one can we can we work with others can we work with the country can we get the other players so that we actually keep this national park or whatever it was that you said 
intact. That's biodiversity. Hmm. What what is worth more? You know, we that we do do that or or yeah. And I I think that you I mean I think it would be a, a winning proposition going out and saying, all right, um, we would write to to whatever animals etc. In in this, there's another example, and and I think it's a. Uh, Another huge companies that was doing a lot of work, put a lot of resources in, found that the little pink flamingo that suddenly was right there in that that water hole, and then they couldn't do it. They pulled back. They said it to their employees. They said it to the world, and they got a lot of positive feedback on that. So, so you know. And the first is like, why would we do it in the first place? If we say, oh, well, we do it so nobody else is doing it. Well, then you can do that in many, many other ways. Yeah, I mean, you could you could try to do it the best way you could. Um, you also then, uh, in, in this particular case, um, as you said, the company started to try to work with the state to try to make sure that, you know, Regulatory environments were in place, so to the extent that they weren't involved in certain aspects of the of the uh, of their supply chain, particularly their suppliers, that that would be good. The country then kicks back very very hard, saying um, you're violating our sovereignty. It doesn't. You are here. You are a big multinational telling us what we need to do. We need to save uh, uh, this particular animal for biodiversity's sake, while we have forty percent malnutrition, and this is going to represent ten thousand jobs and who are you to come in and tell us what to do? Uh, so it, it just becomes, again, I, I think in many, many ways, we, I wish that it was this easy alignment problem. Um, but it, it, the more kind of I, uh, the more direct experience I have with boards and decision makers, often these, these choices are just so devilishly difficult. Let, let me give you an example. This is a different one. Um, this is from some experience. This is some from direct experience. Okay, so let, let, me just, let me just say this. So boards represent the interest of the shareholders and stakeholders, right? What, what do you do as a board member when there's really deep differences across your shareholders and stakeholders about what you should do? So imagine a company's formed... The original investors that you do at IPO, people invest, they're long-term investors, there's some institutional investors, there's some private investors, and they're primarily interested in long-term dividends. And so they're, they're interested in you know, good governance, they're interested in ESG, they're interested in long-term effect of the company. Now, let's just assume uh, through time that the total value of the shares become less valuable than the underlying assets, okay? So for example, let's say you're a hotel company and you're a hotel and you're growing and you acquire real estate through time, but then you know, there's more competition. You don't do so good as a hotel company and suddenly you have all this land that's way more valuable than your, than your total share, all your shares added up, okay? So you're, 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 the situation attracts investors who are, who are interested in having the board close the business and sell off all the land because the land's worth twice as much as the business. Now, let's say you get to the point where you have like half of, the, of your shareholders want to sell off the company and half want to keep it going because they say, look at all the people employed, we have to keep going, et cetera, et cetera. 
okay, that's fine for a little while, but let's say you have like 60 or 70% of your shareholders now want you to sell because they know that if you sold all the assets quickly, they're going to make a 20% return on a short-term investment. And you're a board member and you have the majority of your shareholders now saying sell. And you know, if you don't sell the next board, the next annual meeting, you're going to be replaced. So, so I'm just saying the, the larger question here is, I think that there's lots of times, and this is again, a complication, just wonder how you deal with it. There's lots of times where there's conflicts within your shareholders about what you should do. And I don't know as a, it's easy. In fact, it's easy as, a, as to say to a board member, if we, if we go back to the simple model, your job is to maximize profits. That's easy, but what kind of profits? When the profits? How is that profit? And so I, I always found that a, being a member of the board's really, really hard because you don't know whose interests you're supposed to be uh, uh, pursuing, even within your shareholders. And if I were to go, can, can, would if I went to the um, competent boards, would you help me with this problem? <laughs> There will be a lot of different board members that will probably sit in, in similar uh, similar dilemmas. And that is what we do, right? We, we look at all of those dilemmas. Let me start by saying, you know, you are, your duty is to the corporation, right? So, and many people have heard me saying that you get the shareholders you deserve. You get the investors you deserve, right? So, so I, I see a lot of like, oh, we now someone wants to do this. Let's let's go and and then do that and then go. You are board member to make informed decisions. You have your duty of care. You have you you you, you kind of like in and you want to make sure that do, that you make informed decisions that are in the best interest of the company. Sometimes it is to sunset. Sometimes it is to to sell. Sometimes it's something else. But you need to have that communication and communicate to your shareholders what it is. I think we we're seeing you know where. We have um, activist shareholders. We have others that saying, oh, the company should do this and this. And I'm like, that is a gift for you. Listen, listen, you know, use your ears. Listen to what all of those saying and figuring out this, that is input to a strategy plan. But it's the board's responsibility of being the ones that are board members that make, you know, make choices and, and, and look at all the dilemmas and explain to them. And then it might be that the shareholders disagree. And yes, they can then say, you know, we don't want to have you there anymore. But it's, it's a question about if, if, you know, what's your values? What is the role of not only the company, what's the purpose of the company, but also what's the purpose of the board? And I, I suggest that boards actually discuss that. Yeah. And the and there's a lot of worse things than being removed from a board. Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> there's yes. a lot of less uh, worse things. Listen, I, I don't want to, um, 
I want to respect your time. You've been so generous. And I, I, I love this conversation. I could go on all day with this, but I need to get you out of here because we, we, I, I want, as I said, I want to respect your time and, and you've already been generous with me. So I have one last question for you. We ask all our guests this question. So we've, got, we've been in this kind of COVID nightmare for two years now um, or nearly two years. I don't know about you, but I've had to rely on a lot of kind of books and plays and movies and music to kind of get me through this. So can you can you think of a work of fiction, nonfiction, whatever you found interesting to help you get through the last couple of years? Anything you'd recommend to our listeners? Oh, man, I've been using my time on writing the books <laughs> of the future <laughs> and on interviewing all of these leaders and educating all of these leaders. Um, so. Uh, I guess apart from that, um, you know, going for long, long walks in the woods with with Jesper. <laughs> so, but I'm not. I, you can all come and join us. I'm not sure that that. But but in, in, and then I'm yes. I'm you know I'm writing a lot of articles as well and and being interviewed different places. So I guess that that's something I can. But uh, but yes, it's it's. Uh, I have to admit that I've been more focused on uh, on. Um, educating uh, myself and and uh, and putting things also in the in the book and uh, well fair enough i think i think the recommendation recommendation of a of a long walk uh in the nice countryside uh i think that uh, that's that that counts as a, a something that will definitely help everybody's uh, mental health so uh, uh thank you that's a that's a great well thank you so much yeah thank you for being with us you've been listening to triumph connects a podcast for the triumph community I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.